Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today, we're going to do a zoom out and a zoom in on one of the country's biggest and hardest to tackle issues, criminal justice. In a bit, we'll hear an interview with Alfred Woodfox, who spent most of 43 years in solitary confinement at Louisiana's Angola prison. I'm just going to say that again, 43 years in solitary confinement, and he was wrongfully convicted. But first, a broader look. Anna Grifty Opoku Ajimin has edited a collection of essays under the title The Black Agenda. Each one highlights the work that Black scholars have been doing on big, complex issues like climate, education, and public policy. In this interview with NPR's Leila Fadel, Opoku Ajimin points out that while, yes, there is a dedicated section on criminal justice, if you look closely, the issue comes up in every section of the book. In The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions to a Broken System, writer, researcher, and activist Anna Gifty Apoku Ajiman pulls together a collection of essays from Black scholars and experts. These thought leaders ask questions and pose solutions to complicated issues that range from climate policy to criminal justice reform. The through line? Race and the systemic racism that has informed U.S. policy for more than 400 years. Anna Gifty Apoku Ajiman joins us now. Thank you for being here, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, we need to talk about this book, which really tries to do so much um, through these essays. Why this book? Why now? So the Black agenda, in my opinion, is giving a really compelling case for the humanity of Black people. And I think a lot of times when Black folks, especially Black experts, are trying to make that case in the mainstream or in public discourse, they're often dismissed or silenced. And a lot of times people say, well, you know, you're Black. How can you be objective about circumstances that are affecting your community or your life? And so this book says, you know, look, Black experts have been generating evidence for years. (laughs) And so we need to put that out in the open for the mainstream. And it ultimately was inspired by the fact that, you know, during the very beginning of the pandemic, I was, you know, paying attention to the news looking to see stories about racial inequity being represented in how we're thinking about data collection and how we're thinking about analyses, and I couldn't find any. And so I went to my literary agent and I said, look, I have an idea. It's kind of crazy. But what if we brought all these Black experts together in one book, pushed the book out, and got these folks into the mainstream so that they can now be cited and amplified as they deserve to be? Is there one particular essay that sticks with you from this collection? Yes, there is, actually. Every time I read it, I start to cry. (laughs) And um, the way it goes is um, it's by Dr. Lauren Mims. It's talking about sort of the brilliance of Black girls in the classroom. She says, look, I was teaching a classroom of Black girls. And she says, you know, why do you think you're here? And the answers that they provide are heartbreaking. Someone says, because I'm a bad student. Someone says, because I'm a, a troublemaker. Someone says, because I'm a teenage mom. And so she talks about how she takes in all of those responses. It makes her emotional. She's trying not to cry. And then after they're done, she goes through each of those responses that she's written on the board and she starts to cross them out and replace them with positive affirmations. And I think for me, as a young Black woman who's also been told, like, I'm too enthusiastic, (laughs) right? Like, I'm too loud. I should use my inside voice. It was very affirming. I've been that girl in that classroom. And so... That's why it's one of my favorite essays in the book. You know, I got to the section um, on criminal justice, and you start with a stark list of names. Yes. Just some 
of the more than 200 black people that have been killed since George Floyd in Minneapolis, since Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. In the book, Tahir Duckett, civil rights attorney, advocate, and the executive director of Georgetown Center for Innovations and Community Safety, she writes that, quote, the truth is that no system with policing and prisons at its heart can regularly deliver justice to black people, as these institutions are designed to criminalize our existence. So let's talk about that, because a lot of people get scared when they hear slogans like defund the police or terms like abolish when it comes to the criminal justice system. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point. And, you know, Tahir makes several points around that. But something that was pointed out to me recently is that criminal justice actually comes up in every single section of this book, if you look closely. So what Tahir is talking about in his essay actually comes up in climate. It comes up in healthcare. It comes up in how we think about, you know, the rural South, specifically with black folks. All these black experts are saying the same thing. It should not be illegal to be black in America. Black life should not be criminalized. And in the criminal justice chapter, it is the only chapter where literally the problem is statistics. It's the facts. So, for example, out of 17,500 police killings between 2005 and 2021, only 140 police officers were indicted on murder or manslaughter charges. So, you know, when Benga Ajalore says we cannot solve problems in the Black Belt where, you know, the majority of Black folks are living in the South by putting more people in jail. We have to invest in community resources. So we've got to talk about this moment that this book is coming out. I mean, it's coming out as we're living through a reignited movement for Black lives, a racial reckoning, but also a backlash against that movement hysteria over critical race theory? What is it like to try to center Black voices when a swath of this country refuses to acknowledge institutional racism? It's hard, period, to do that. But I think that's it's always been hard. You know, the fact that folks are being upset around folks teaching, you know, the whole history of America, all of the nooks and crannies of the harms and atrocities done to Black folks, is a direct result of folks feeling guilty, right? Like, you, you feel guilty that you have benefited from something that has caused so much harm, and you're trying to absolve yourself from it. And I think what this book does in such an eloquent way is it presents us with the facts. These experts have been studying the literature, have been having their lived experience of racial inequality for so long that they understand how this is going to play out. And so for me, this book came at the perfect time. It just makes a case, a compelling case for why Black life matters. At the end of this book, you have a series of recommended readings. Um, and you spoke about how you didn't see Black experts on mainstream platforms. Is this a reference book? Is this book the start of a journey for a reader? What this book ultimately does is it removes the excuse of we don't know where to look. You say you don't know where to look, I'll say go check out the book. There's 35 names right there. And then look at their sources. And so when you ask me what kind of book this is, it's a call to action to stand with Black people, to advocate for Black life in all sectors of policy. This book ultimately is a work of conviction because the facts are very, very clear. Black life has been criminalized, undermined, underappreciated, undervalued, quite literally, for its entire existence in America's history. And what this book does is it doesn't give you a reason to look away. Anna Gifty Apoku Ajaman, thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for having me here. It's one thing to talk about criminal justice from a faraway policy standpoint. It's a whole other thing to talk to someone who's seen the worst of it up close and alone. NPR's Scott Simon spoke with Albert Woodfox, who, along with Leslie George, wrote a book titled Solitary about spending more than 40 years in solitary confinement. And Scott asks Woodfox a question about being gassed that pretty bluntly shows what life in prison is like. He doesn't ask why or when, but instead, how often. Albert Woodfox joins us now from the studios of WWNO in New Orleans, and I want to ask him to read a paragraph from the new book that he's written with Leslie George. It's called Solitary. Mr. Woodfox. I pace the cell to think. I pace to relieve tension. I lightly box the walls. My knuckles have calluses on them from boxing the wall. I do push-ups on my fists. I don't have deep thoughts. I'm practical. I get through the day the way I have done a thousand times. Will this be the day I break? I push that thought away. Mind over matter, I keep moving so later I can sleep sometimes. Albert Woodfox served more than 40 years in solitary confinement in Louisiana's Angola prison for a crime he says he didn't commit, the murder of corrections officer Brent Miller. Mr. Woodfox was already serving time at Angola for armed robbery and believes he and another inmate were set up because of their prison activism as members of the Black Panther Party. His conviction for Brent Miller's murder was overturned twice, each time the state indicted him again. He was finally set free in 2016 after a plea deal to lesser charges. Albert Woodfox says the self-discipline instilled in him by his mother helped him through those decades alone in his cell. I spent a lot of time reading, writing, self-education. Uh, I, I used the time to uh, teach myself uh, both criminal and civil law. And uh, we lived on what we we call an organized chair along the principles of uh, the Black Panther Party, uh, mm-hmm. developing unity. Among the uh, guys on the tier, we we taught guys how to read and write, which, you know, I think was my greatest achievement. Mr. Woodfox, how how often were you gassed? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, gas was a standard uh, form of uh, weapons that the uh, security people use. So anytime you challenge uh, inhumane treatment or you challenge unconstitutional conduct, they would gas you, you know, and depending on the severity of, of the confrontation, they would open up your cell and they would come in and beat you down and then, uh, you know, shackle you and bring you to the dungeon and uh, you probably would stay there a minimum of 10 days. The fact that I was involved in organizing a lot of protests against, you know, along with Herman and, and Robert. Friends of yours, fellow inmates who were in at the same time. Yeah, the other two men that made, uh, you know, made up uh, what's called the Angola Three. They made it very possible for me to survive decades in solitary confinement, and not just survive, but you know, to, to develop myself into a better person, a better a human being, a better man. 
And we, Harmony and I, established the only recognized chapter of the Black Panther Party in a prison. And when Officer Miller was found or uh, stabbed that, uh, we became the, uh, the primary target of, uh, of the administration and the security people. Mr. Woodfox, did you have problem with closed-in spaces? Yeah, I mean, I have problems uh, even now. You know, yeah. I still have claustrophobic attacks. If there's a solution for claustrophobic, uh, you know, for me it was the pacing. You know, you get this urge uh, when 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 these attacks uh, first occur. You know, you feel like the atmosphere is closing on you. You feel like the very skin on your body is is compressing, and like you you know you feel like you're smothering. So you know uh, you fight not to panic. You know, I mean, for me that was the key. You know, not to panic. And you know, over the decades, you know, I mean, I've there have been times, and particularly during the summer months, when I've had attacks and I, I've walked up and down my cell, uh, and there were a, a puddle of water from the from the front of the cell to the back of the cell from me sweating. You know, yeah. and you just pace. You know, and. There have been times when, you know, the, the attacks last, you know, four or five minutes, and there have been times when they last for hours and hours, you know. Over the years, uh, Brent Miller's widow, Teeny, became convinced you couldn't have been the person who murdered her husband, right? Yes. When I got out, I had an opportunity to sit down with her and, you know, have dinner and, and meet with her and her daughter. And... Uh, it, you know, our hearts always did go out to uh, Miss Rogers because, you know, we knew that she was not being told the truth. You know, all of the evidence that pointed to, to someone else uh, killing uh, uh, Brent Miller, she was never made aware of that to my understanding. And, uh, but once, you know, uh, our investigators and stuff, you know, talk to her and give her all the facts, then on our own, she come to the conclusion that, you know, we had been uh, wrongfully convicted for the death uh, of her husband, you know, mm -hmm. and she became an ardent supporter for our freedom, you know. This seems like such a naive question, but how, how are you doing now? I'm doing okay, you know. I mean, I, I just celebrated my 72nd birthday and my three-year uh, anniversary of freedom. You know, as I say, since I've been out, I've been there and I had an opportunity to speak across America uh, and, and outside America. And, you know, uh, one of the things that the three of us promised and, and, and made a vow to is that when we went free, that we would be the voice and the face of the men and women and children that hidden behind the walls of prisons in this country. So that's, you know, what we are trying to do now. And, of course, we are trying to end the use of solitary. Uh, you know, solitary confinement uh, is, the, is the most cruel form of torture. Albert Woodfox's new memoir, Solitary. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. 
The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Elena Burnett, Amy Isaacson, Janea Williams, Tinby Ermias, Taylor Jennings-Brown, Ed McNulty, Denise Guerra, Melissa Gray, Barry Gordimer, Mohamed El-Bardisi, Shelby Hawkins, Chad Campbell, Peter Breslow, and Viet Le. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>